Backyard Green Films is proud to present this episode of Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Alara and her husband, Rick, travel throughout the land in their teardrop trailer that they have nicknamed Maggie, bringing you stories about their travels and the people they meet. They visit farmers, ranchers, and just about anyone who loves putting their hands in the dirt or their feet in stirrups. For the past three years, they have been filming a documentary about heritage breed animals entitled The Holstein Dilemma, Heritage Breeds, and the Need for Biodiversity. In those travels, they have gotten to meet some very interesting people. Here's one of those interviews. Hi, I'm Alara. Our podcast today is from an interview in Paonia, Colorado, which is a little town in the western half of the state. It sits fairly close to the Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park and Grand Mesa, which is said to be the largest flat-top mountain in the world. Peonia is known for orchards, wineries, and breweries, quality livestock, and is also the home of the Western news magazine High Country News. The average high temps are almost 90 degrees in the summer, 15 degrees in the winter, and sometimes the wind can really, really blow, as you can hear throughout most of the interview. You can't hear the cold, but let me assure you that was there at times as well. Our interview is with Eugenia McGuire, also known as Uji. She raises black Welsh mountain sheep on her farm in Paonia. Uji sells pretty much everything sheep, including mutton, horns, and wool in various forms like raw fleeces, roving, and yarn. She also has a huge loom on the top of her barn, and she actually knows how to use it. Of course, I had to buy a pair of beautiful dark wool socks. She was also gracious enough to put us up in her lovely cottage for two days, which was especially wonderful. Some of the places we visit are not exactly on the tourist path, and hotels are few and far between, so she was very gracious. In our days at Desert Ware, Uji spoke of a few ideas that kept coming back again and again throughout our documentary travels, as we've learned about heritage breeds. She spoke of the need for biodiversity, the vulnerability of localized populations to the vagaries of climate changes and natural disasters, and the efforts it takes to make these animals economically viable in competitive markets. This interview was one that really opened my eyes to the possibilities that exist to merge technology and agriculture in today's world. Uji has a degree in computer science and a master's in animal science. How might these things go together, you might wonder? Well, apparently, it's the perfect mix for raising sheep and analyzing the results. Who the thunk it? Uji's skill sets have led to the creation of what she calls her Lamb Tracker program, which makes it easier for breeders to keep tabs on everything they might need to know about their flock through an ear tag, a barcode scanner, and a software program that she's written. Uji's been participating in long-term research studies on cryopreservation and artificial insemination fertility rates with the USDA's National Animal Germplasm Program in Fort Collins, Colorado. Dr. Phil Purdy was on site doing collection from the rams, so Uji invited us to come to her farm and observe the collection process. It makes perfect sense once you think about it, but in addition to having a master's or PhD in a higher-level animal science degree, you apparently have to be a gymnast as well. We had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Phil Purdy, and we'll be sure to do a podcast with him later in our series. In addition to being a gymnast, he's also an incredibly nice man. It was a funny mental moment to see Uji out in the pens with a barcode scanner in one hand like a supermarket checker, 
Dr. Purdy waiting for the moment he needed to jump, the Rams loudly pounding on the chute door to be allowed to do their annual task, and my hubby Rick trying to figure out which non-intrusive camera angle might actually work. We spent two fascinating days on a sheep ranch filming collection samples for cryo storage and artificial insemination. As a bookkeeper, I have a job that many think is pretty dry. I've always wanted to be part of a project that was edgy enough to have a warning on it. So after two days of filming AI studies, here's as close as I'm ever going to get to say, viewer discretion advised. Please state your name and your title. My name is Eugenie McGuire. I go by my nickname, Uji. What's the name of your farm? Desert Weir. Okay. Um, if you could give a description of your farm, including the region and the climate, please. We're in western Colorado, so we're a sort of high desert area. We're irrigated farmland. We have a 40-acre farm, half of which is off the end of the mesa and not usable. And then behind us, we've got our apple orchard, and it's where we graze our sheep. If you could please give a description of the heritage breed that you chose or that chose you. We raise Black Welsh Mountain Sheep. They're the only all-black breed of sheep in the world. They're obviously from Wales, a British breed. And I originally got them because I wanted to have a traditional medieval Welsh cloak. And so I got the sheep and got a spinning wheel and got a learn to spin, got a loom, learned to weave discovered along the way that what I had in my mind's eye as a medieval cloak was not historically accurate. So what I ended up making was an 18th century ladies cloak. And when we finally ended up inheriting the farm, my mother's spinner's flock, which included our black Welsh, also had a lot of other breeds. And I decided we just needed to focus on the sheep that we liked everything about. And so I like everything about this breed. So how uh, did you learn about heritage breeds in the first place? I actually do not know, because I don't remember. Had Angora goats when I was a kid in 4-H, and had Cordale sheep when I was a kid in 4-H. Um, raised and bred Silver Spangled Hamburgs, show, show chickens, and you know, back then. And I don't exactly remember when I learned about the American minor breeds. And then it became the Livestock Breeds Conservancy, and now it's the Livestock Conservancy. So um, our apple orchard is an heirloom apple orchard. They were planted in 1905. So I've been aware of that and saving seeds and things for pretty much my whole life. So. Did your pasture start out this way, or what did you do to make it? Um, when we, First off, I grew up on this farm. I went to high school in Paonia, so this is sort of a family farm. When my mother passed away and we inherited it, that was 98, but we didn't actually move back here till 2000. When we moved back here, the pasture was almost all fescue. There were huge, big, bare patches where there was no grass or cover at all. There was no clover. There was the occasional bit of alfalfa, but that was it. And we started doing the intensive grazing. And now we're up to where we're about 40% clover. Um, this is alfalfa. Alfalfa's coming back. Uh, this is a fescue. We've got brome. We've got timothy. We've got uh, meadow. Meadow 
something or other, I don't remember its exact name, and a couple others, and we've not done anything to this orchard area. The pasture where the little lambs are right now, we did plow up and reseed, but we didn't put any clover in there, and yet now it's about 40% clover. So do you use, do you use these animals on your farm, or do you raise them just for fun? Oh, they're definitely a, a production. This is a business, so they're a production animal. In Wales, the White Welsh Mountain is one of the top production sheep in the UK for their, their crosses, Welsh mules or Welsh half-breds. We don't have any White Welsh Mountain sheep that were imported into North America, so the only of the Welsh Mountain breeds that we have are the blacks, but there's no reason that just because there are not very many of them, they can't be a perfectly viable commercial sheep. Okay, so when you say production, what does that apply to? The Welsh Mountain breeds are a dual-purpose breed, so they are both meat and wool. The wool is a medium to coarse, depending on the breed and the area and the forages, and the meat is considered one of the prime mutton meats in the UK, as well as providing good lambs. There's In the UK, there's a three-tier system of hill breeds, like the Welsh Mountain, being bred pure for a while on the hill, then bred to Blueface or Border Lester's, for either mules or half-breds. The offspring from that, the ram lambs, are slaughter lambs. The females become basically mules or half-breds and then they're bred to a terminal sire and then that's all slaughter animals. So it's this three-tier and the ewes will kind of tra travel down that. So a, a hill ewe might be bred on the hill for a few years and then when she's no longer able to handle the harsh climate of the hill, they will move them down to kinder pastures, more lowland areas, breed them for the mules or the half-breds so that they can have a long productive life. But it's, it's primarily meat. Used to be wool was a bigger part of the income, but at this point uh, meat is the primary product. So yeah, the tails are all long on our sheep because the black Welsh mountain sheep, all the Welsh mountain sheep actually are supposed to have a long tail. It protects the udder from the wind and the snow in, in Wales mountains. And if you dock the tails on sheep, your whole flock is unregistered and you're forbidden from owning registered sheep again. Now, docking tails is necessary for some breeds of sheep. And if you look on, well, I don't really want to do it on these guys yet. Um, when we're done, I'll do it on one of the ewes in there. But a lot of sheep have wool that goes right up on the base of the tail. And so manure can get matted in that. Flies can lay their eggs and it can cause fly strike and that can kill a sheep and it's really horrible. So the black Welsh, there's no wool on that underside up very far. And one of the concerns is if you start docking tails, you might you might not realize that you're losing that not woolly underside characteristic. If you put the rams all together in the field, would they battle it out at all? Oh yeah, they do. There's a bunch of them out there. They, they'll bash, they'll particularly be bashing in the morning. So I, I guess now's a good time if, if it's all right with you. How many how many sheep do you have on your farm? Right now we're at 164. 22 adult rams and then use your uh, adult ewes, yearling ewes, and then 
lambs from this past year. Yeah, we're starting to lose the sheep patience. Uh, 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 easy, Riley. You're a good man. Here, just stay and talk to me. Just stay and talk to me. So I never want to rub a ram on the top of the head. That's a dominance thing. So I'm trying to, I'm controlling him by running underneath his chin. So what makes this ram a perfect ram for his breed? He's not a perfect ram. There are no perfect rams. I've heard it said that most breeders will see the faults rather than the positives in their breed. Yeah. Um, there are no perfect breeds. There are no perfect animals. There are just ones that are more or less close to what you want. Easy. Stay down. So one of the things that he's got that I like, he's got a nice meaty body. He's got a good disposition. His horns are too tight and close to his face. That's a fault. He toes out a bit in front. He's got a decent hind end but it's not as meaty or as great as some, but it's still decent. Um, he's got fairly good wool quality. He's got a good disposition, other than the fact that he's in a hurry right now. Wants to get to the girls, which is not necessarily a bad thing for a ram. Ah! The perception that is so heavily prevalent in our society is that farmers are yokels and that they have you know, they might not be as educated and that there's some hayseed on the right. It is not that. It is science. It's applied science. It's applied. And that's different from stuff. You know, the stuff we're doing with Dr. Purdy is applied science. It's genetics. It's, it's genetics. I mean, that's what I went to college for initially was genetics. That's what I was interested in. I stayed in my initial time an extra year to have all the hours to have a bachelor's in genetics as well as one in computer science. I only got into computers because we were using computers to model genetics. I was writing in the 70s some of the early programs that were being used to calculate progeny differences, breeding values based on, on pedigree and measuring phenotypic data. And that's how I got into computers and then I went off on the computer path. Well now I'm coming back to it. I just finished my master's degree last December in animal science. Congratulations. So I got that. I just got that done. You know, it just took a long time. But this is applied science. It's applied research. And it's something that small flocks and rare breeds and, you know, the whole holistic management thing is applied science. And it doesn't mean that basic research isn't valid and useful too. But there is, I mean, just the mere fact of being able to look at a pasture and know when it's time to move the sheep, that's a scientific evaluation of forages and growth and weather that a lot of times you don't even know exactly how you figured it out. You've learned it. It's been learned through experience, but it's still based on science. It's systems theory as well. So you're yeah. taking oh, yeah. climate, soil science, microbiology, um, animal husbandry, a little bit of botany. Uh, you're taking all these things into account yeah. and wrapping it into one piece and managing the entirety. It's a yeah, phenomenal thing. It's, it's a thing. holistic, it, you're working with holons. You're working with the whole thing. Biosecurity can also pertain to dispersal. So another form of biosecurity is having the animals in multiple flocks or locations. If you have 
all your eggs in one basket or all your sheep in one flock and any sort of disaster happens to that flock, then you've lost that. And genetic diversity, once lost, can never be regained. So one of the goals of rare breeds and one of the goals that we have is to ensure that the genetic material and the resources are in as many places as we can get them. It's a victory garden, in a way. It is, in many ways. It's very important. And it's important to keep all the variety that we have. When I first went to college and I was going in pre-vet, I ended up in computer science, but I started out in pre-vet, took a lot of genetics and biology classes getting ready for that. None of my animal science professors at Colorado State University ever saw the whole grass finished as anything that was ever going to be important. They thought that that had died out at the, at the beginning of World War One, too. And yet, here we are, you know, 40 plus years later, and grass finished is a big deal because needs have changed, the consumer has changed, the environment has changed, and what we as farmers have to produce has changed. And if you lose the animals, whether it's the breeds or the species that provide that genetic diversity, then you will lose the ability to adapt to those changes. So one of the things that's the advantage of doing the artificial insemination is you can use more males in a given season. From a rare breed standpoint, one of the ideal ways is to have more, at least one male for every female. So you want to use as many males as possible. And there's no way you can set up 52 different breeding pins and keep 52 rams just to only have them breed one ewe. So that's one of the advantages of using artificial insemination for rare breeds because sire line narrowing is a big driver of lack of genetic diversity. When a single sire becomes very popular, then he gets used a lot, or you use him, use him on a lot of, of ewes, then that narrows your gene pool. How do you know if the process takes once the artificial insemination occurs, if you're going to inseminate When the lambs come out. That's it. We can't do ultrasound here because it's, we, well, we've got an ultrasound machine. We just haven't gotten very skilled in for sure identifying whether it's an AI pregnancy or a later pregnancy because the ewes will get AI and then they'll get backed up with a live cover ram a, a certain amount of time later so that we hopefully have, everybody will have a lamb, but it's just who's, who's the daddy? depends on when the lamb comes out, and that's when we know how things work. So as a rancher, farmer, what do you consider you as a... Farmer. As a farmer, this could be a risky thing to, to do a new process like this. You could Oh yeah, there was one year it was a total disaster and we didn't get any pregnancies from the AI, and not only that, it screwed up for the live cover, so we were out the year's worth of production. So yeah, it's a risk. I think it's an important risk. I think it's a risk that we need to do but it certainly can be a risk. So one of the things is since we've been breeding for ewes that get pregnant on the first cycle and lamb easily, we're selecting for sheep that show heat strongly and come in right away. And because of that, I've got ewes that will still show in heat even after they're pregnant. So in a flock that had been less highly selected for some of those early lambing traits, 
yeah, you could use are they showing in heat as a pregnancy test, but in our flock it doesn't seem to work quite that way. So if you could explain the shaking of the tail and the licking part and all of the things that we've seen so far. just um, I'm not 100% certain what the licking is of the, that the ram does other than they all do it and that's how they, you know, check to see if you, and they'll come and they'll use their front foot and they'll kind of tap her on the, on the butt, on the, on the back. It's like, and if she walks away, then that's it. But if she stops, wags her tail, then he may go ahead and mount. And that's why when we were collecting here, you saw some of the rams would come up and they'd come up and they'd basically do this. And that's because they're testing to see if the ewe's going to walk away. For just a safety reason, if a ram is up there, you don't want him, the ewe, to walk out from under him and him to fall. He could get injured. They can't actually break or rupture uh, the urethra or the penis. So... They want, you know, it's not a good thing, so they kind of know how not to do that. So, um, I noticed here too, I, if you could mention the, the fact that they're so gentle in their mating process. Um, yeah, they're not a real aggressive breeder. You know, it's not like some species where they really go and what? I just, sorry, in the background, I, all the little ewe lambs suddenly took off, so I'm wondering what they saw. There's a noise over there. It sounds like a small airplane. Uh... Some, something, yeah. They got scared by something, so off they went, but it's okay. Um, so, you know, they did, it does tend to be a little more gentle. Some rams are more aggressive breeders than others, and some rams will butt the ewes a bit, and um, some ewes will turn. And, and but the rams. One of the things we've discovered in our flock, and it's unusual, it's partially because I know all the sheep and have lots of data, but I know the dominance of the females, of the ewes in the flock in general. And we've had cases where we've kept a ram for breeding that's the son of a, a very low on the totem pole and not a dominant ewe. And they're separated for a year or more, and yet you put that that ram now in to breed, sometimes the dominant ewes will not allow them to breed them. They will walk away or they'll turn and buddy and they will just not. How they know, I don't know, but it does happen. And lambing behavior is something that we see. We lamb out on pasture under the, under the orchard. And um, our sheep often don't lamb at night. So we don't go out at night to check sheep. We're out at dawn to, to dusk, but not typically at night. If one's looking to have a problem or we need to watch her, we'll pull her down close and put her in a small little jug pen on pasture, but down close so we can go out and check her at night without disturbing the, the dogs or the sheep. But our sheep will park their lambs and go off and graze and then come back to their lambs, which is a very different behavior from the way a lot of sheep work. And... Another thing that they'll do is family groups. So we'll have, you know, we may have a matriarch you, her daughters, their daughters. You know, we may have two or three generations, aunts, cousins, all in the flock. Oftentimes that female, that family group of females will share in the care of their lambs. They don't usually let each other's lambs nurse although occasionally they will, but what they do is they will put them together and they'll, they'll get a babysitter. And the babysitter will be, you know, watching the little lamb creche of the lambs and kind of keeping corral on, the, on the, the lambs while the moms go out to graze. And if 
then the mom decides she needs to be nursed because her udder's full or the lamb gets hungry, they ba, and you'll see them running from across the pasture to meet. If the lamb is baing, like the lamb's hungry, and mom is ignoring it, the babysitter will go get mom and bring her back to the lamb. I don't know how that works. It does, though. And then groups of ewes that don't have close family members in the flock, sometimes we'll see that group of ewes form sort of a, a child care group. And they will usually recruit the least dominant you is the babysitter. So it's the lowest one on the totem pole who gets to, to stay with all the little lambs while everybody else goes out to eat. And, you know, they'll do that little clusters. And that's a very interesting, and it's, it's, it may happen with other breeds of sheep and it may happen in, in more flocks. But I think part of why we recognize it is because we're out there all the time because all the sheep are individual. We know, I know most of the ewes. And if I can get tag numbers or can look them up, I, I've got the whole lambing history in my lamb tractor program, so I can look up what they've done. I know the pedigrees. So if I, can, if I can get who the mother and father is, then I can pull up the pedigree in my mind going back multiple generations. One of the important things about the cluster analysis that was done by NAGP for the Black Welsh Mountain Sheep Association is that it allowed us to identify a couple clusters that existed only in individual flocks. Two of the rams we'll be attempting to collect this afternoon and that they're high on the priority to get this week are rams from clusters that do not exist in the repository right now. We don't have any ewes to breed to them, but they also only existed in a single flock. One of the rams came from New Hampshire, and another ram came from Washington State, Oregon area. You know, they, there are actually two flocks out there, one in Washington and one in Oregon. And so those boys are here primarily for semen collection, and they're going to be hopefully rams that will produce for us this afternoon, and if not, they're going to get multiple opportunities. And that's something that the Black Welsh Mountain Sheep Breeders worked together to be sure that we know where all our clusters are, we know where who has all the animals that exist in those clusters, and then we try to work among us to spread those animals around. And it's a backup procedure. You know, if something happens to that flock in New Hampshire, well, one of the things did happen. The gentleman's retiring. He sold the flock. Most of it went off to one place, but we've been trying to place those sheep clusters, breeding groups, into other flocks so that it's spread geographically and not as much at risk. Now you have a very strong breed organization, obviously, because you're you're running the show here. If 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 I bludgeon people into having a strong breed organization, <laughs> we run our own breeder um, registry system and our own breed directory. Um, we're actually probably going to be working on some stuff that's going to be open source and available for use because the software package that we're running the registry on right now is has been its base database has been orphaned and the development stopped about five years ago and it's not clear that the company that makes it is going to be able to transition to a modern database that's going to run on modern computers fast enough so one of the things that i've been working on is my lamb tracker program has been designed that i'm using for flock management personal flock management has been designed so that it can be easily expanded to be a registry package i just got to find time to code it so but I, I look at the locations 
that we've been to so far, and some of them are fairly remote. And I would think that that's maybe one of the things that's kept breeds um, the integrity of the line, but that's also something that makes it difficult to find other breeders that you might breed with. So as the advent of the computer and places like your, your organization and Livestock Conservancy, places like that that have a central database where you can connect with other breeders, does that change the face of how small breeders uh, run their flocks or herds? I think it's critical. The, the whole trans-U.S. transport of rams and breeding stock from New Hampshire, New York, Maryland, um, Indiana, Colorado, out to the West Coast, only happened because we could talk and we could send more than just a phone message. The same thing happened up in Canada. We had rams, there are two clusters that only exist in Canada. We had rams and ewes of those clusters in Canada, but they weren't in the same flocks. So it took this cross coordination to get, okay, somebody's going to step up, take care of that cluster. So everybody basically sent the rams and the ewes of that cluster to that flock. They're taking care of it. They're breeding it. They're going to expand it. And when there's enough animals, they're going to send those animals back out to the original people. But if we hadn't done that, that cluster would have died out because the rams were one place and the ewes were another. And, and that sort of communication is a whole lot easier when you've got good Internet. It's one of the reasons that we've also been strongly pushing and why our local electric cooperative is in the process of putting in fiber and we're going to get fiber to the farm soon i hope <laughs> because we need it we need that bandwidth we need that access one of the things that many of the breeders that we've spoken with had said that you are you are selecting for temperament as much as anything oh yes very much so because that's highly heritable and it's how and it makes things manageable it's easier to manage the animals So, so is this their only shot for the Rams, I mean, until next year, or do they get no activity between now and then, or do they get to cover? Um, depending, I will end up, we'll be doing AI on everybody, and we'll try to use a variety of Rams. Easy, sweetie. And then we'll end up splitting into two breeding pins, and there will be a primary Ram for live cover for each breeding pin. That ram will be in there for three weeks. We'll take the ram out for 10 days to two weeks, and then we'll put a backup ram in. So each ewe is going to get three opportunities to be bred. If a ewe doesn't have a lamb, then that's a cullable offense. They have to produce a lamb because we've given them every opportunity. If there was a, a ram problem or a management problem, that's something that, you know, we can control. I, I am struck over and over again as we've been on this farm that your life, I mean, again, this is a personal level, but your life, your personality is a constant repetition. It's a, it's a fractal. It is fractals in motion. You have genetics that lead to your, to your sheep that lead to your lambs. You have small threads 
that leads to your roving, that leads to your yarn, that leads to your clothing. You, you are a summation of many details that go into larger pictures. And you do this with history as well. I've noticed mm -hmm. that the history is, is a sum, obviously, of many details, but that that's also a part of your picture. So how, how do you feel that history fits in to the main tapestry of your, your life's work? The winners always write history. And the dominant cultures and dominant individuals write history. And oftentimes that has meant that the equally important and vital stories don't always get told. So one of the jobs is, and it's heritage breeds, it's keeping alive the craft and art of spinning and weaving and uh, of textile arts is to honor the skills and the knowledge that was learned by those previous peoples and carry it forward because again, you know yeah, I can go to the store and buy a wool garment or I can buy a synthetic fleece jacket but I've lost something of my history when I do that, unless I'm doing it for a very specific reason that I need something like that. So I think it's important to keep all of that going. I would, I would again look years and years and years from now and look at the genetics program that you're working on. Mm -hmm. And I would say, it would be, I think it would be fair to say that somebody 500 years from now might feel the same way about what you're doing with genetics as you feel about that tapestry and those little threads in it that somebody took such care with 200 years ago, yeah. 500 yeah. years ago. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I've been on farms where there literally have been sheep on that farm documented for a couple thousand years and, you know, going back even more. And those farmers know and understand that they're just caretakers for their lifetime. And that's, I think that's one of the things of farming. People either get it or they don't. You know, you're, you're never the end in a farming environment. You should always just be moving it down history's path a little bit more. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. This is how we keep going. And please tell your friends to join us. We want to thank Uji McGuire for having us at her farm, Desert Ware. For more information about Uji and her Black Welsh Mountain Sheep, please visit her website at desertware.com. That is spelled D-E-S-E-R-T-W-E-Y-R. Please join us next week when we interview Dr. Carrie Fowler at his farm in upstate New York. You have been listening to Agriculture with your host, Alara Bowman. Please tune in for more upcoming episodes from our travels. We'd also like to thank our producer, Michelle Council. I'm Rick Bowman, your behind-the-scenes editor. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Backyard Green Films Productions, all rights reserved, copyright 2019.